God's mercy and peace are yours in abundance, my brothers and my sisters. Do you know someone who's really into scary movies? They'll watch anything scary that they can get their hands on. Is this maybe you? Are you a scary movie fan? If you are, or if you know someone who is, you can kind of notice something as you keep watching these movies. Some things keep happening over and over, and you catch yourself watching this group of people trying to make it through the night without being harmed or trying to escape a killer. They tend to make the same mistakes. And when you've seen it over and over again, you start to call on it. Maybe you're talking to the TV. Why are you going down that hallway? Why are you just standing there? Run. Why are you going down in your basement with no light or any way to protect yourself? Really, really easy to point out what they should be doing differently if they want to survive. But while you're making these criticisms, you're sitting comfortably in your own house, probably in your sweats, enjoying yourself. You're thinking clearly. Your mind is calm. If this were actually happening, this story that you're watching, and if you were actually in their shoes, adrenaline would be flooding your brain. You would be dehydrated and starving and exhausted from having to run around and escape a killer all night long. You might cut yourself some slack if you make a couple bad decisions. But it's really easy to criticize when we feel distant from the issue, from the problem, right? That's what David felt when he heard Nathan's story. Nathan shows up in the king's court, the king of Israel, it's King David, and he's telling him this story of a man and his ewe lamb. And he has a very special, close, with, close relationship with this pet. He feeds it from his table. He lets it drink from his cup. When it falls asleep, it sleeps in his arms. It's beautiful. And Nathan is speaking David's language. Because before David was king of Israel, he was a shepherd. He earned his livelihood taking care of and protecting sheep. So he knew exactly how cute a tiny little newborn lamb was. He knew how adorable it was to watch them try to walk but fail, how, uh, how cute their little bleating sounds were. David knew all of that. So you can imagine a soft look on his face. He's starting to grin. But David knows that the other shoe is going to drop. He's king of Israel. People don't show up in his courts just to tell him cute stories. He knows that Nathan is going to bring something before him that he has to make a decision on, that he has to give a judicial ruling on, and he's waiting to hear it. He's not just listening to this story. Then the shoe does drop. Some rich guy takes the lamb, even though he's got plenty of herds and flocks of his own, and he butchers it as a meal for some random guest. David's face becomes red with righteous indignation. David is furious. The man must die, he says. Well, what's his ruling? He must pay four times over what was lost. And that shows that David knows the Old Testament law. Because in the Old Testament, if you took someone's, from someone's flock or herd, killed it on accident or, or stole it, you were supposed to repay them four times what was lost. David was a man of the law. But he also wouldn't have mind, minded seeing this rich man run through with a spear either because what he did was so morally 
reprehensible, was so disgustingly selfish, was so greedy and despicable. And that's exactly the point. David found it so easy to point out what this guy should have done differently, what should be done to this guy, because he thought he was distant from the problem. But Nathan closes that distance and reveals, you're the man. This whole story was an allegory, David, for what you have done with, with Bathsheba and what you have done to her husband, Uriah. David, you're the rich man in the story. You have everything. God anointed you, selected you, set you apart as king of Israel. You lack nothing. Everyone loves you. You have fame and fortune and everything. But that wasn't enough for you, David, was it? You had to go meddling in someone else's life. You had to go lusting after Bathsheba. You had to use that power and authority that you had to coerce this woman to sleep with you because of your own lustful desire for pleasure. And when she conceived a child, you had to have her husband Uriah killed on the battlefield to cover up this scandal. David, you're the man who took what didn't belong to you, who acted morally reprehensible, disgustingly selfish, and just plain heartless. But it's really easy for us to look at this event and tell David what he should have done differently. This was the time when these events took place when kings normally go out to war. David, why weren't you in battle with your soldiers? Why were you hanging out on your palace terrace spying on women below? David, as soon as you saw Bathsheba and your heart started racing with thoughts of sex and lust, why didn't you just go inside? Why didn't you just put those thoughts away? Why didn't you think about anything else? Why did you have to pursue it? Really easy for us to say. When you're watching a horror movie, the chances of you actually being in that situation are zero, right? So when you're watching this terrible story of tragic things happening, of scary things happening, and you say, oh, I would have done this or that differently, there's no way to prove it, because you're never going to be in that situation. So you can say whatever you want. Are we really going to say, though, that we would have done something differently if we were in David's situation, which we are all the time? We aren't a bunch of kings sitting on palace terraces spying on women. But we are in the same core position a lot. Think about our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden. They bought into the lie that God was holding out on them. They were tremendously blessed in every single way. Life was absolutely perfect, but somehow they let themselves believe that God had some blessings he wasn't going to give them, so they might as well try to find them on their own. That's exactly what David did. That's exactly what we do. We buy into the lie that God is not good and that we need to find pleasure, that we need to find blessing, that we need to find happiness in any other way other than him. We buy into the lie that God is not going to bless our marriages if we simply love our spouse and don't ask for anything in return. So what do we do? 
we nag, we lecture, we become more of a parent than a friend because we want to get what we believe is ours out of our spouse instead of serving them. We, we buy into the lie that God's design for sexuality is good, but we don't think that it is, so we pursue all these variations of it or allow those to happen under our watch. Brothers and sisters, every sin that we commit is buying into the lie that God is not good, is going out on our own and selfishly, vainly pursuing happiness or pleasure outside from God. That's what David did, that's what Adam and Eve did, and that's what we do every single time. In a horror movie, you can point out someone else's mistakes and be far removed from it. But in real life, when you point out someone else's sin, David's or Adam's or whoever, you can't do that without also implicating yourself because we're all cut from the same cloth. That's what Ash Wednesday and Lent really are about. Ash Wednesday, reminding us of that moment in the garden when Adam and Eve had to hear of the consequences of their sin. And the greatest of these consequences, of course, was death. That though Adam was taken from the dust of the earth back to dust, he would have to return because he had sinned. Death, decomposition, our bodies returning to the ground as a result of our sin. Ash to ash and dust to dust. Also in the Old Testament, smearing ash across your head was a normal way of communicating repentance saying, I've messed up and I'm done making excuses. There's no justification for it. I repent. See these ashes. That's what we do during Lent. We acknowledge what our sin deserves. David was forced to see face to face what his sins deserved. He was going to face some very real, very striking consequences because he was God's anointed because he was God's specially chosen king, meant to set an example for Israel, lead Israel, and he had introduced this selfishness into his reign. So he was going to see that selfishness play out in subsequent generations. He was going to see it, and every time he saw the, the sin of his children and their children, he was going to have to realize, that's because of me. Just like when you and I, we see the sin out in the world, we have to realize we're part of that too. So we should repent. Why? If our sins deserve punishment, deserve death, deserve hell, why even fess up about it? Why should David admit a thing if he's going to get punished this way already? Why spend 40 days, a whole church season, focusing on repentance? It's because you don't know what grace is until you understand how little of it you deserve. You can't talk about forgiveness at all without acknowledging that someone has done wrong and we're those ones. You cannot see God's true goodness without realizing what it is that we did deserve. Nathan shows up to David's court and he throws this sin in David's face, not to rub his nose in it, not to make him feel guilty just for the sake of feeling guilty, but because David was living a lie. 
He pretended that nothing was wrong. He didn't acknowledge that his sin was wrong. Only when Nathan brings him down, breaks him down, does he admit, I've sinned against the Lord. Against the Lord. Against Uriah, yeah. Against Bathsheba, yeah. But any sin we commit against anyone ultimately is a sin against God. David admits that. Let's admit it too. We've sinned against the Lord. But let's also hear Nathan's reply, which is God's reply to you too. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Of all the consequences that sin has, the worst, of course, is an eternity in hell. That's what our sin deserves. An eternity of separation from God's love, spiritual death. But the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die that death because someone already did for you. Because there was another of God's anointed, this time his own son, born to be our Savior. God blessed him and gifted him with power and authority, but he didn't use it to celebrate his own self. He didn't use it to pursue his own pleasure. He only and always used it to serve and to love. He used it for our good. And then the true you lamb was butchered on a cross when Jesus shed his blood for you. But by his wounds, you have been healed of all of your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin by putting it on Jesus and crucifying it on the cross. Now you see grace. You see what you have deserved, but you see what you're never going to get. You are never going to get what your sin deserves because Jesus took it on for you. Brothers and sisters, I may not know what your particular struggle is, I may not know what temptations you face on a daily basis, what war against sin you are waging. If there's any way we can talk about it and help you know that we're available. But this, we all can say for certain, that the devil is relentless in his lies. He will lie to you that God is not good, that he doesn't truly love you, that he's holding back on you, and you better find pleasure and happiness on your own. He will lie to you and tell you that you're innocent and that sin is not your problem, it's someone else's problem and you haven't done anything wrong. Look at all the explanations you have for what you do. And if he can't convince you of that, he'll lie to you and tell you that you are the worst of the worst, the most disgusting sinner that has ever lived and that there's no way that, that God could possibly love you because of what you did 20 years ago or 20 days ago or 20 minutes ago. But when when the devil says that to you, brothers and sisters, not if, but when, follow Martin Luther's advice, who told us that when the devil comes and he throws your sins in your face, and he says, you're a sinner who deserves death and hell, say to Satan in that moment, so what? I am a sinner, and I know what I deserve. But Jesus Christ has died for me, and in his name I am forgiven. And because of him, I will live eternally in paradise. Brothers and sisters, join us for Lent. 
journey with us in this season of not guilt-tripping ourselves, but facing facts, facing the fact of our sin so that we can see God's grace, so that we can hear how beautiful these words truly are. The Lord has taken away your sin. Amen. Would you please stand?